you will, take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black hardbound Bible somewhere close by in the pew. And the the verses we will read from Luke chapter 1 are on page 856 of that Bible. We're continuing our study in the gospel of Luke. Uh, Earlier in chapter 1, what we saw is that God revealed through the angel Gabriel that both Elizabeth and Mary would become pregnant. Now, Elizabeth's pregnancy is miraculous because of her age and because she is barren. Mary's pregnancy is even more miraculous because she is a virgin. And now, having heard the news of her relative being pregnant, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And this is the scene we come to today in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. Beginning in verse 39, and we'll read to verse 56. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. This is what the Spirit says to us. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Uh, Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, indeed, we need your help. We are thankful that you have spoken to us in your word, and now we pray by the ministry of your Spirit that you would make your light of truth shine in this text, that we would hear it clearly and see it with the eyes of our heart and love it and believe it. O God, this morning may these words not fall on deaf ears. May these words of glory not bounce off hard hearts. 
Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you say. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen. When we come to certain parts of the Bible on a regular basis, uh, we become quite familiar with them, and that's good. It's good to be familiar with the Bible. It's good to know our Bible. It's good to know the stories. It's good to understand the doctrines that are taught in the Bible. But there is a danger to familiarity. You've probably heard the phrase, uh, familiarity breeds contempt, right? A a phrase that is used to talk about knowing someone so well and becoming so overly acquainted with them that uh, you begin to show less respect for them. Um, It's actually a phrase I think might apply uh, to our dear friend Sandy McFadden and her relationship with poppy seed bread. She has made so many loaves of poppy seed bread by this time every year making who knows, dozens upon dozens upon dozens, that the sweet smell of the vanilla wafting through the fellowship hall can no longer make her mouth water. Familiarity breeds contempt. Now, when it comes to the Bible, familiarity doesn't necessarily breed contempt, but it can breed apathy. The old, old story of Jesus and His love can just start to sound old and stale because I've heard this before. Soul-stirring realities become run-of-the-mill. Miracles become mundane. Wonder fades. Marveling at what God has done can too easily become meh. Familiarity can breed apathy in all of us. And here in Luke's gospel, we are in familiar territory. Every time we come to the beginning of the gospels, we are in familiar territory. Every time we come to the story of the birth of Jesus, we are in familiar territory. And the danger in coming to familiar territory, to angels and to shepherds and to wise men and to stars and to a virgin giving birth, is that my phone is making noise. Hold on. Goodness gracious. I wonder who is talking in the middle of this. Who would dare interrupt? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I come so familiar with silence that I come to expect it. Uh, But familiarity, when we hear about angels and shepherds and stars and wise men and a virgin giving birth, we can just kind of get to the place where we run through the thing again. We just check it off. Yes, I've heard all that, but the fact of the matter is all of this communicates the glorious truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God took on flesh, that the one who is immortal and invisible took on mortality and visibility in order to save us. Now, that may be new to you, but I think for many of us, this is familiar territory, and familiarity, as I said, can breed 
apathy. So I think we do well to pay attention to this text where we see anything but apathy in response to the incarnation. This text should lead us to respond to the truth of the incarnation with joy and faith and praise. That's what we see. These are the three responses we see, joy, faith, and praise. First, we see joy. We see joy. Now, Mary is excited. She's excited for Elizabeth. She packs her bags as soon as the angel's gone, and uh, verse 39 says, with haste, she goes into the hill country, probably about 70 miles south, four or five-day journey, uh, and she arrives at Elizabeth's home. And when she gets there, joy breaks out in the house. Now, that doesn't seem particularly supernatural, does it? Two women in the same family, pregnant at the same time, for the first time, and there's joy. I mean, that's something you'd actually expect, wouldn't you, at the family reunion? But this is actually, this is more than just rejoicing in pregnancy, What we see here is rejoicing in the miraculous work of God sending the Savior to be born from Mary's womb. We see joy in the incarnation. I mean, Mary rejoices in the Lord. Look at verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. But the bulk of the joy that we see as far as the words are expressed before this. Elizabeth rejoices. She has great joy. Look at, look at verses 41 and 42. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry. Joy explodes from Elizabeth's heart. She cannot keep quiet. She gets loud. She can't contain herself. She exclaims. Now, that word is only found here in the New Testament, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's found a number of times in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, and it describes the music that is being played as the ark of God comes into Jerusalem. It's not just that the guy at the soundboard cranked up the decibel level. It's that it is resonating with joy. Because the very symbol of the presence of God is now coming back to the people of God. How much more joy when not the presence of God, but the person of God Himself is coming to dwell with His people. It's a celebration. She exclaims and with a loud cry says, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, blessed among women means she is the most blessed. Mary's blessed more than any other woman. Why? Not because of Mary's superior character, not because of something in her heart. It's because of the someone in her womb. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, it's actually not unique for a woman to be honored like this because in the Bible, it's very clear that children can either honor or shame or dishonor their parents, right? And so the character of children often reflects parents. And when the Son of God is the child in your womb, there is no greater blessing than that. 
to be chosen by God to be part of His plan in this way. She is blessed among women because of the fruit of her womb, the one that Elizabeth calls my Lord in verse 43. The Lord, the mother of my Lord, it's the Lord in her womb. That is mind-boggling language, but that is why this joy is exploding. Now, there's another reason Mary's blessed, and we'll come to it in just a minute, but Elizabeth isn't the only relative that's rejoicing here. Did you hear that when we read it? Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, again, that seems like natural language, doesn't it? You're six months pregnant. There's going to be some activity in that womb. There's going to be some kicking and cartwheeling and running and all kinds of things, using the bladder as a trampoline. I mean, these are the kinds of things that happen at six months. But this is not just natural. This isn't just instinctive, natural movement. Just it's, it's more than that. This is the language of a child lost in joyful imagination skipping down the street. Look at verse 44. Elizabeth explains it for us. When the, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Not just kicked, you understand. Not just moved around. Not even just leaped. Leaped for joy. Now, you'll remember back in verse 15 that Luke writes that this child, uh, well, in that paragraph, that this child is going to be the one who announces the coming of the Messiah. And even here in the womb, John announces the arrival of the Messiah in his leap for joy. So, that the house is just full of joy. Mary's rejoicing. Elizabeth's rejoicing. Little John is rejoicing. There are smiles. There's laughter. There's probably, you know, these fast, uncontrollable claps. There's dancing. There's hugging. There's tears. I mean, how could it be any other way, right? The joy of Jesus' arrival. I mean, everybody's joyful at a baby's birth, but this particular baby stands out, and actually the Old Testament predicts that when he arrives, joy arrives with him. So you listen to Isaiah 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There is a prophecy about the coming of the light of the world, Jesus, into the world. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. When the light shows up in the darkness, joy shows up with it. And then in Malachi, we read this, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's joyful leaping. That's what's happening here. Joy comes with Jesus. And actually, later in his life, Jesus says he came to give a joy that cannot be taken. It may be forfeited. It may be handed over. 
to circumstances, to suffering, to people, to whatever. But Jesus says later in in John's gospel that he gives his disciples a joy that can't be taken. When Jesus comes, joy comes with him. Friend, when we hear about the incarnation every year, rehearsing it over and over again should actually stir up our joy again. It should increase our joy. It shouldn't diminish our joy. If our joy diminishes, if we kind of say, well, it's time to go through those same stories and that same stuff every year, if we get to that place, do you know the story hasn't actually changed? The ears that hear it have. The heart has. God is glorified when, when we respond to this news of this baby, this incarnation, with joy. I mean, think about it. The Lord of glory has condescended. He has humbled Himself and entered the womb of this virgin girl. The one who is impenetrable became vulnerable. That He might go all the way to the cross and be obedient to death to redeem you. Don't harden your heart to that. Rejoice. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. We don't just see joy in this text. We also see faith. Now, this will be briefer. It's just in one one verse. Look at verse 45. Elizabeth is still speaking, and she says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the second reason that Mary is blessed, not only because of the child, but because of her faith in God's Word. Now, if you think back to all that's happened in chapter 1, Elizabeth, of all people, can understand the distinction between faith and unbelief. Remember, she's married to Zechariah, and if you paid careful attention, Zechariah didn't say anything in this whole little section. But it's not because the news has left him speechless. It's because he is voiceless, because he was supernaturally silenced because of his unbelief. So the angel comes to him earlier in the chapter and says, your wife Elizabeth will uh, be pregnant and you will have a son and he will be great before the Lord and all of these things. And turn back just one page and look at verse 18. This is what his response is. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, I emphasize those three words on purpose. You believed, you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled. And what does Elizabeth say of Mary? Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken. 
Mary takes God at his word. I mean, she said it up in verse 38. We saw it last week. Let it be to me according to your word. She is blessed because of her faith. She believes God will do what he says he will do. She believes nothing can stop him from carrying out his purposes. And actually, the dividing line in all of humanity is seen here in the dividing line between Mary and Zechariah, isn't it? The great dividing line in all of humanity is not between sinners and non-sinners. It is between those who believe and those who do not. It is those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who do not. And the only path to blessing is through faith in Christ. That's the only way we are blessed, truly blessed, given favor in God is in Christ. It's not through uh, some position you may achieve in life. It's not through the good stuff you do in this life, doing your best to obey the Ten Commandments. It's not even through religious services. You can't preach enough sermons to be blessed by God. I can't preach enough sermons to get into heaven. Because after all, look at Zechariah. He's got position. He's a priest. And he's actually obedient. That's what chapter 1, verse 6 says. He was righteous and obeying the commandments of the Lord. And he's serving in the temple. But neither his position nor his obedience nor his service in the temple is what matters when the angel comes to him. What matters is, will you believe? That's what matters. Dear friend, if you're unfamiliar with church or, or, or with what it is that we preach, we, we do not preach that what you need to do in life is to get more religiously active, that this is your greatest problem. You're not actually religious enough. You're not doing enough good things in the world. This is not the biggest problem with mankind. The biggest problem that creates all the other problems is the sin that separates us from God. And neither my position, nor my service, nor my obedience can do anything about it. I am helpless. The Bible describes us as dead. We are not simply struggling and drowning in an ocean. We are dead and bulging with the water in our lungs at the bottom of it. And the only way we are rescued is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need a little more religion. You need a whole lot less of you. And you need Jesus. That's the dividing line. And when we hear again of all that God has done to save us, if you're a Christian, your faith should be refreshed. Your soul should cry out again, I believe this. I believe. I trust in Jesus. But the question for all of us is, do you believe? Do you believe that in the Lord Jesus? Do you believe that He died for your sin? Do you believe that He rose from the dead on the third day to give you eternal life? Faith is the dividing line of humanity. Faith is the only acceptable response to what God does in Christ. The response of joy, the response of faith, and then the response of praise. Praise. Uh, verses 46 
to 55 are a song of praise, um, given the label, the Magnificat. Now, it's given that name because uh, Magnificat is the first word in the Latin translation of her song. My soul magnifies the Lord, Magnificat. Mary takes what she knows about the great and glorious God and His work in her life and in the world, and she lays it out in lyrics. And her goal is magnifying the Lord so that His greatness is clear for all to see. Just this past week, um, you know, Facebook always pops these memories up, right, from one, two, three, seven, eleven years ago. Well, a memory popped up in my Facebook uh, from five years ago, and it was a video, and I watched it. It was George W. Bush delivering a eulogy for his father, George H.W. Bush. In it, he spoke of his father's service in the Navy and World War II. He, he, he talked about his father floating in a raft after being shot down, of his service to the country as a politician, as a diplomat. He spoke of his father's sense of humor, his deep love for his wife and his children and his grandchildren, the lessons he taught them, his integrity, his example. What was happening there? It was a son laying all of this out to magnify his father, to speak in such a way to make it clear why he was great. And that's what Mary does. She magnifies the Lord. And she makes clear four basic things here. The first is that the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, Mary is not just reciting something she learned in Sunday school. She's not just saying something. She doesn't say, God the Savior. She says, God my Savior. Mary knows her Bible. She knows her own heart. And she knows that like the rest of humanity, she needs a Savior. And that the Bible clearly tells us only God is the one who can save. In her song, she also tells us, makes clear that the Lord is merciful. Look at verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. God looks on her. That doesn't mean that he just sees her. It means she, he is aware of her. He is aware of her condition. He is aware of who she is. And he, the text goes on to say, shows mercy. God's mercy is that trait of God by which he does not give us what we deserve. He has pity on us. And the Lord does that for Mary. She is a servant in a humble estate. In the eyes of society, she'd be forgotten. But God does great things for her. And the fact that this girl carries our Savior reminds us of God's mercy toward us in the Lord Jesus. Psalm 103 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Dear friends, we throw around the language of deserving a lot in our society. What I deserve from you, what I deserve from my job, what I deserve from my neighbors, what I deserve from my children, what I deserve from my parents. If we limit our perspective to what it is the Bible says, we deserve punishment. We deserve nothing good, actually. We deserve wrath. We deserve to be separated from God because of our sin. But God shows mercy to all who fear Him. All who revere Him. All who bow before Him. He mercifully forgives. He mercifully saves. Our sins are so many. But His mercy is more. So friend, you see, of all the things that you might pray for, maybe you've never prayed before. I tell you what, one of the first things you ought to pray for from God is mercy. Mercy. When you know what you deserve, you know mercy is what you need. The good news of great joy for all is that God will show mercy to those who come to Him. And those of us who know and enjoy God's mercy toward us, even this morning, should praise Him for it, as Mary does. Thirdly, the Lord is holy. Right there in verse 49, holy is His name. Now, in part, this means that God is free of moral corruption. He is absolutely pure. He, he is good and He does good. He never does wrong. He is never unjust. But the bigger meaning is that God is unique. There is no other being like Him in the universe. He is the only creator. He is the only sustainer. He is the only Savior. He, and He is unique in the way that He works in the world. Look at verses 51 to 53. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. You see, in the ancient world, and honestly, even today, if someone is strong and powerful and rich and has position, we kind of assume God's favor must be on them. And in the ancient world, when people were in those kind of positions, they would believe the gods are on their side because the gods just take the mighty and make them mightier. But the one true and living God is actually holy. He is unique from all of these other things, and He doesn't do that. He loves actually to give strength to the weak. It, the mightiest of all human beings are nothing compared to the Lord. Notice the imagery in verse um, 51. He has shown strength with His arm. The arm is a biblical picture of strength, and God's arm is more powerful than man's arm. God's arm flips everything we kind of think by instinctively on its head so that 
Those the world expects to prosper, the proud, the rich, and the powerful, are brought down. Now, it's interesting. All of these things are, in, are written in such a way that it sounds like they've already happened, doesn't it? He has shown strength with his army. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He is the rich. He has sent away empty. You hear how that sounds like it's already done? Well, that's, that's because in Mary's mind and in reality, it's already as good as done. The one who is coming will be the one who brings all of this huge reversal. Just go this afternoon to Matthew chapter 5 and read what we call the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and watch how everything is flipped upside down. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Everything gets flipped upside down so that so that all of those people we would expect to be prospering all the time are brought down, while those the world forgets, the humble and the hungry and the nobodies, are exalted and fed by the Lord. Luke 14 says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he is the Savior, he saves, he is merciful, he is holy. And the Lord keeps His promise, verses 54 and 55. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. In the coming of the Lord Jesus, in this incredible incarnation where a baby is now in a virgin's womb, God is keeping His promises. Now, we could go to a whole host of things that God said in the Old Testament to see that, but Mary's mind focuses in on Abraham. And God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that blessing is going to come through Jesus, who is the greatest prophet and the greatest priest and the ultimate Savior, and He is King, and He's a Redeemer, and He is the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And when we see these things about God, that He is holy, that He is merciful, that He saves, that He keeps His promises, how can we not but magnify Him? Magnify Him in our singing. Magnify Him in our gospel witness. Magnify Him by our obedience. Magnify Him in our giving. Magnify Him in our families. Magnify Him, for He alone is worthy. For He alone is worthy. He has looked on our humble estate, and He has shown mercy to us. This visit is more than just a visit between two pregnant women. It's a reminder of the joy and the faith and the praise that ought to swell in our hearts every time we hear Jesus Christ is born. Good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. 
Give ye heed to what we say. Jesus Christ is born today. Friends, don't let familiarity bring bring apathy in your heart. Children, students, be familiar with the Bible. If there's one thing we are seeking to do as a church, and I'm sure your parents are seeking to do, is to help you understand what it is that the Bible teaches and why it teaches it. But don't let being familiar with the Bible turn into a cold heart and closed ears. Don't tune it out or ignore it just because you know it. And for all of us adults, don't let familiar familiarity breed apathy. Don't sit through sermons. Listen, this is a grave danger. Don't sit through sermons looking for only what is new and novel and you've never, ever heard it before. Because if that is the measure by which we judge sermons, we will very quickly be into false teaching. Very quickly. Because that's where the new stuff is. That's where the novel stuff is. That's where the stuff is that you may never have heard before. If you're teaching a class or if you're discipling someone or if you're just teaching your children, don't get to the place where you think the Bible is just something you teach. It's not first something you listen to. Don't get to the place where the Bible is just a tool to do other things. Don't listen to the words about Jesus Christ and His grace and His cross and His resurrection in the same way that you might listen to your math teacher, wondering, how is this ever going to apply to me? Don't do it. Beware of boredom with the Bible. Beware of passing the time when God's Word is preached on your phone or letting your mind wander Plead with God every time you open the Bible at home and every time you're teaching or being taught. Plead with God to help you respond to the glory of Christ and the glory of His incarnation in the ways that we see in this text. Now, why do we need to do that? Here's why, and here's where it gets really hard, is that it is impossible for you to just walk out of here and put that on a to-do list. Okay, I'm going to respond with joy, and I'm going to respond with faith, and I'm going to respond with praise. This is not a to-do list. You can't get out and get this done. On your own and on my own, we will never respond with joy and faith and praise to what God has done in Christ. But there's someone in this text who makes that happen. Look at verse 41. When Mary heard the greeting of when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 15, you know what it said about John in the womb? He would be filled with the Spirit. Do you remember what happened last week and who it is that's going to come to Mary and empower? She will be overshadowed by the Spirit. 
Friends, the only way that we can respond with joy and faith and praise to what God has done for us in Christ is by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And that is why, dear friend, you must throw your... If you have a cold heart toward these things, you cannot go out with a to-do list this week and get her done. You must throw yourself down on the ground before God and say, God, please awaken my dead heart. Please open up my ears so I hear the beauty and the glory of what you have done in Christ. Break my hard heart. Shine your light into my darkness so that I can see it. Oh God, don't let this fall on my deaf ears. That's what we need. We need God to intervene by His Spirit. It's why we pray for our unbelieving friends. It's why we pray for our children. It's why we pray for our neighbors. And it's why we should pray for ourselves because it is only by the power of God that we will respond in joy and in faith and in praise. But hear this. God loves to answer that prayer. He loves it. He loves to answer the prayer. If you being good, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Ask Him. Grab hold of Him and don't let go until He answers. And he will. He will. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before you, thankful for your word, thankful that your spirit works through your word. And we pray, God, we plead with you by your spirit. Make these words. Stir in us joy and faith and praise. Our natural response is none of these. We need your Spirit's work in us to respond brightly. Give us the joy of Elizabeth who just can't help herself but rejoice. Give us the faith of Mary to believe all that you have said will come to pass. And looking from our vantage point has come to pass in and through the Lord Jesus. And fill our hearts and our mouths with praise to magnify you and to magnify your mercy toward us in Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the praise team comes, uh, let's just take a moment of...
silence and reflection. Let's just bow our heads and reflect on what the Lord has said. Where is your heart in response to these things? How do you respond to to the incarnation? Is there joy in your heart? Is there faith? Does it prompt praise? Let's take a moment and reflect on those things, and then we will stand to sing.